episode 32 of the build. We are in our Mark Strite era. Our Rem Pitlick era. Our Brian Flynn era, if you will. Always time to remember some guys. Uh, glad you've joined me again. If this is your first time, thanks. If it's your 32nd, thank you. If you're somewhere in between, thank you. Um, glad you've joined me once again to hear me yell and scream about a season that does not matter. Um, okay, I rarely yell and scream. I mostly save that for the tweets that are in all caps. But it is like a legitimately difficult time watching the Montreal Canadiens right now. Uh, they are 3-4-1 and one in the month of December, which is not done yet. There is still lots of time for them to make things worse. Um, they have one win in their last four tries that came against Calgary at home. Back-to-back -back losses against the Senators uh, in Ottawa, which is really Bell Center 2.0 because that place was full of Habs fans. And then at home against the Ducks, where they, they managed two goals in each of those games. And it just the game always felt out of reach. They never really put forward uh, more than 20 minutes of sustained pressure at any given time. Um, so due to that, you know, minor free fall that the Canadians find themselves in, you know, the, the, the tank has sort of been revitalized. They find themselves, as I'm recording this, in 22nd place in the NHL. That is 11th in the Connor Bedard sweepstakes, so just outside the top 10. Um, but as I've been saying sort of all along, and as a lot of people have been saying, the Canadians are regressing the way that we thought they would, and we'll get into one of the main topics shortly. Um, but other teams that are below them that were obviously better teams that got off to rough starts, those teams are improving. Currently at 30 points, the Canadians have been passed by the Sabres and Flames. Despite beating the Flames twice, they're still ahead of Montreal. So that's how much Calgary's kind of dug their way out of the start that they had. Um Ottawa, Nashville, St. Louis, and Vancouver are all within two points of the Canadians, and all of those teams have games at hand, in hand against the Canadians, with the exception of St. Louis, who has also played 30 games. Uh, the Flyers have played one more game than Montreal, but they're also just three points back, so that's not even insurmountable for them if they sort of figure out what's going on in Philly. Um, I know Tortorella gets the most out of, out of guys, but that, that just never felt like a good fit there from the beginning, so I wonder if they'll be able to overcome that. Um, and then after that, you get to San Jose. Um, the, the gap between Montreal and San Jose is five points currently. So getting into the top seven or eight is entirely possible for this team, and I think that's right around like where you'd expect them to pick, um, or I should say that's around the lottery odds you should expect them to have. Teams in that range win lotteries. So that's not out of the question to move up in this draft. And also, Florida does not look particularly strong right now. And that's another pick that the Canadians might have early in the 2023 draft. And looking ahead at the schedule that Montreal has to close out the year, Montreal has one last home game on Saturday night against uh, Tampa Bay. You're, you might be listening to this on Saturday, so tell me how it went. Um, outside of that, they head on a road trip. They play Arizona, Colorado, Dallas, Tampa, Florida uh, in Sunrise against the Panthers, and Washington on New Year's Eve. And on paper, that looks like one more win this month with the potential for some loser points if the goaltenders steal them some. So 
you know, the last few games, the last few weeks have been good for the tank and bad for the eyes. Um, you know, unless the goaltending picks up and unless the offense picks up, because really they've only they've only scored two goals in the last two games. And, you know, against Calgary, it also felt like pulling teeth trying to get them to score a goal. Um, but I do want to talk about one of those things right in this episode, because I haven't spent a ton of time on it um, to this point in the show. And that's the goaltending and, and how they've regressed. And I'm, I'm discussing this because a listener, Doug Saylor, um, at LestatBC, uh, wrote to me on Twitter, I find the Habs goaltending frustrating. I was there when Montreal blew the four-goal lead to Vancouver. What would you do with the goaltending? Back to the drawing board? First of all, I appreciate the question. Thanks for sending it in. Um, before thinking about like a plan of what the Canadians should be trying to do with their goaltending, I, I wanted to look at the numbers and see you know, if if the things that we're seeing with our eyes are matching sort of the, the trends um, in the underlying numbers. So I went to natural stat trick as one does. It's just the, the most, it's just the easiest site to use. Um, the goaltending like the Habs as a whole had a great start to the year. Um, or as Alan so eloquently put it after the loss to the ducks, they were all hot and horny at the start of the year. I don't think I ed- need to editorialize that quote. I think it's just perfect the way it is. Um, so I broke the season into two halves. Um, we've played 30 games this point, so I've, I separated this into the first 15 games and the last 15 games. And here's what I found. In the first half, Allen played 10 games. Um, he had an expected goals against of 33.22 and an actual goals against, at all strength this is, of 32. So about one goal saved above expected. He was probably right about where he should have been. Um, and he had a 902 save percentage. So those numbers kind of, you know, you'd expect that if, if there was a high, you know, a high goal saved above expected, you'd expect that that save percentage would be higher. Case in point, Montembeau. Um, he only played five games in the first 15. He had 16.89 expected goals against, but only 12 actual goals against. So four goals saved above expected. Um, that puts him at a 930 um, save percentage. So... Montembeau was fantastic to start the season. Allen was kind of just treading water. Um, I think Allen's Allen's stats are really funny for the first half of the season because he he was playing in a lot of games where either he was getting like 20 shots and giving up four, or he was seeing 40 and giving up two. Like there was no there was really no in between for him. Um, I think back to like those games against Washington and Detroit earlier on in the season that probably buoyed a lot of these stats. Because 10, 10 games, 10 starts for a goalie isn't like a massive sample size to draw from. Um, so now you head into the last 15 games. Uh, Allen, also 10 games played, 33.04 expected goals against, 33 actual goals against, according to uh, Natural Stat Trick. So it, Allen seems to be right around the same area. Um, one goal saved above expected. He's an 899 save percentage in the last three, um, or in the last 10 games, which sounds really bad, but it's really not that far off from the first his first half of the season. He's been consistent. He's only uh, 0.3% off of that save percentage. Montembeau, the last five, uh, in his last five starts, 15.94 expected goals against. 18 actual goals against, so above, about three goals saved above expected. Um, and again, these are the numbers Natural Statric has. Other websites have different numbers. 
because expected goals are are it's not like war in baseball where it's one true number that like everyone's inputs go into. It's not the same for everybody. Um, so Mondenbo truly fell off, right? Like he, and we've seen it in the games that we've seen Mondenbo play, like that Vancouver game that our listener was at. He just hasn't been particularly great lately. Um, so the goaltending regression that most people have called for is well underway with Allen kind of, you know, trading, trading off good game, bad game is what it seems like. Um, and Montembeau just, you know, the last five games have been really, really bad. Will it get worse? Um, it certainly could, especially at the, um, at, at the rate they're currently playing Jake Allen. Jake Allen's currently on pace for about 55 starts. In the splits that I did, he, in the first 30 games, he played 10, Montembeau played 5. In the last 15 games, Montembeau played 5, Allen played 10. So th- he's playing two-thirds of the games. He's on pace for about 55 starts. It's probably too high. Um, he's only done that twice in his career, and those were at his age 26 and 27 seasons. So like, it's not something that I'm really expecting an, an older goaltender to be able to pull off, um, especially in a season where you don't have to do it, right? Like teams ride goaltenders when they're trying to get the most out of their team, when they're trying to, you know, 2015 Canadians it, where they're just trying to, the only thing that they have going for them is Carey Price, and they're just riding that out until the wheels fall off. They don't need to do that right now. So I, I, I sort of wonder if, if, you know, we'll see a more even split going into the, you know, the, the middle part of the season, the, the real meat of the season. So should the Canadians be looking for a new plan in net? I don't, I don't really think so. At least not an immediate solution. Um, because there's one, there isn't one just like readily available. Caden Primo's in Laval. He would be the next logical choice, but one, he's hurt. Upper body injury, not practicing with the Rocket. And two, even if he was healthy, calling him up and playing him in this mess, I don't think can be the solution for both the Habs or the Rocket or Caden Primo. Um, and on top of that, unless a goalie gets hurt, the Canadians don't have the roster space or the cap space to make a call-up like that. So, you know, in the case that Montreal were to lose a goalie due to injury, potentially Caden Primo, once healthy, could be called up. If it's going to be a long-term injury, I almost wonder if we see Kent Hughes do the same thing he did last year when he traded for Andrew Hammond. Just a, you know, a veteran stopgap goaltender to allow the organizational depth to be able to play where it should play. Um, you know, we don't need ECHL goaltenders on the NHL roster. But I think from a philosophical standpoint, from a roster construction or from a rebuild looking, you know, a forward looking standpoint, I think this was sort of always part of the plan for this team, this goaltending adventure that's happening right now. They signed Allen and, and, oh, they signed Allen to an extension, but they signed Montembeau to keep him because they wanted the tandem of Montembeau and Allen. And I think they've gotten the tandem of Montembeau and Allen. This is just kind of what that, that goaltending tandem is going to be for this team. Um, they were, they were treading, they were, you know, they started off so well, especially Montembeau, as we saw with the numbers, Allen kind of has always just been, you know, average because he has really high highs and really low lows. 
Um, but the goal, like I've said all along, the goal for goaltending on this team is not to, um, it's not to steal games. It's to keep them in games. It's not to be great. The goal is to keep them from losing eight in a row, like they did a whole bunch. Um, and long term, I do think the Canadians should be looking at potential options in net. They have some interesting goaltending prospects in Jakob Dobish, if the pronunciation on elite prospects is to be believed, and Frederick Disho, a.k.a. The Gnome, my favorite nickname in the Canadians' pipeline at the moment. Um, but the same principle for draft picks in general can be applied to goalies, and I think you want as many swings as you can reasonably get at finding a future number one goaltender. There are two teams that come to mind that have truly excelled at this um, when it comes to you know drafting and developing goaltenders, one being the New York Rangers. Um, they had Henrik Lundqvist. Why draft and develop more goalies? Well, they found Cam Talbot. He was a backup, traded for assets. He's a starter in this league. Here comes Igor Shosturkin and Alexander Georgiev. Shosturkin's elite. We're going to keep him once Henrik's done. Alexander Georgiev was a, at one point like a, like one of, one of the, if not the best backup in the NHL. He gets traded. He's just, I think he's the starter in, in Colorado, unless I've missed something. Um, but the, the Rangers under Lundqvist churned out three starting goaltenders. The Penguins similarly have had some really nice hits on goalies. They went from Fleury to Matt Murray to Tristan Jari and Casey DeSmith, who I know has some warts as a human being. I'm not litigating that. But it just goes to show, like, successful teams in general. Like, I feel like they're they're taking shots at goaltenders and they're finding goaltenders and they're, you know, even if they've already got one, they're going to try to find the next one. I think that's what, you know, their expectation was with Caden Primo. It has not come to pass just yet. Um, and who knows if it will, because that's what goaltending is, right? Like, we really have no idea um, what what a goaltending prospect is going to be until they are it. Um, so keep taking swings at that position. You'll find a number one goaltender soon enough. Um, he may already be in the system. Like I said, it might be Jakob Dobish. It might be Frederick Dichaud. It might be Caden Primo. But you can't rest on that. You have to, you have to keep digging. Because, you know, what's the worst thing that happens is you find another good goalie? Find, find more good goalies. All right. Thanks for the question. Moving off of goaltending. Um, Jonathan Druin. Let's talk about Druin for a little bit. Uh, he returns to the lineup on Wednesday against Ottawa. He was immediately the subject of scorn from Habs fans. Um, I, you know, it's just sort of a day that ends in Y bit where, you know, you, you just sort of expect that this is something that Jonathan Duran is going to get for the rest of his career in Montreal. Um, in that game against Ottawa, um, Duran was the point man on the six on five with the goalie pulled, um, and the puck bounced over a stick and went all the way back down to the Canadian zone to essentially end the game. Um, incredibly unlucky, right? Like it wasn't a great pass from Suzuki. It was kind of hot. Didn't need to be that hot. It popped up on him. Things happen. It's incredibly unlucky for a guy who seems to have nothing but bad luck. Um, and I continue to find it odd that St. Louis deploys guys like Drewing and Dodonoff and Hoffman and Armia as bottom six, sometimes fourth line players, but then also asking them to contribute in high leverage situations like the six on fives, like the power plays. 
Duran in that game against Ottawa played seven minutes and 40 seconds at five on five, but he played 1239 total because he's being asked to also play, play the power play and then the six on five to tie the game. And oh yeah, he was back at center, a position we all know very well he cannot play. And I understand they did that because they're short on centers because they really want Kirby Doc to stay on that top line and Monaghan's out. So sad, too bad. I, I get it. I understand the reasoning for it. But as we saw in the Anaheim game, you you could very easily shift Rem Pitlick to, be sent, to play center on the fourth line and move Drang throughout the lineup. It's totally fine. Um... I, I want to compare this to baseball um, because I think Druin's entire, like, his entire life cycle with the Canadians, it seems like he's, like, the starting pitcher that the Canadians signed in free agency. I don't know if you're seeing any of these, like, massive contracts that these starting pitcher, pitchers are getting. Um, but, like, you sign a starting pitcher and... You know, you sign him long-term, and then you find out he's more of a reliever. And then when he struggles coming in in relief, you use him only sparingly in matchups that are favorable for him and very low-leverage situations coming in, you know, maybe already in a blowout, putting him in there so, you know, we just get through the game, um, you know, that sort of thing. And then out of nowhere, you just start throwing him out there in the ninth inning of a one-run game, and you ask him to be the closer. Like, the whiplash there has to be really tough to deal with, especially in your first game back in over a month. It used to it used to drive me nuts when when Claude Julian did it, when he had you know Alex Galchenyuk on the on the fourth line, and then it's like okay you play the power play now okay you're out there with the game tied and the net empty. He used to do the same thing. I think I've talked about this before on this show. If I haven't, I will say it in uncertain terms right now. Mark Bergevin was wrong about Jonathan Drouin in 2017. He was never going to be the guy that Mark Bergevin touted him to be when he sat up on that press conference and he said, expect the unexpected. He wasn't going to be a superstar. He wasn't going to be a center. We know that now. That, no matter how many times you tweet and yell and scream about Jonathan Drouin, this is who he is. The goal for the Canadians now needs to be to get him going. So you can move him at the deadline to a team looking for you know some kind of some kind of third line offense because honestly that's probably what he's going to provide. But every expectation or preconceived notion that you had of Jonathan Drouin earlier in his career needs to be marked as obsolete. And I know that that might involve you know absolving him of some of the poor plays that he makes. He hasn't played a ton of hockey as of late. He just hasn't. He hardly played at all last year. He's hardly played this year. Even when he was healthy, he was scratched for a lot of it. Like I'm uh, I I think we I think we have to come to understand that like this is like we're he's trying to make the best of a bad situation. So is so is Marty St. Louis for what it's worth. As much as I, I kind of, I really don't understand the, you play fourth line minutes and then also you have to win us the game at the end. You know, it can't be good for a, a guy's, you know, psyche. But they're trying to make the best of a bad situation. It's, it's, it's very certain that he is playing his last games in a Canadian's uniform, which I bet, I bet kills him, right? Like I bet, I bet he hates that. He's from the area. 
You saw how happy he was when he got traded to Montreal. Like, that's every kid's dream is to play for your hometown team, and it doesn't go the way you want it to. Like, eh. So, if you start to temper your expectations for Durang to be just a, a third-line guy, he'll chip in a couple of assists now and then. He's going to be out there on the power play. I feel like it's just, that's, that's just where we need to be with him. So I'll leave that there. Um, and I hope he starts to play well. I'm rooting for the guy, right? Like, you know, everything he's gone through, um, it would have been a really, really cool story if, if this year he just came out and kicked ass. And he's shown flashes. It's not all there. But he's also not been healthy. And it's it's just a shame. So I guess what I'm saying is layoff. <laughs> anyway, Ely Tolvanen, not a Montreal Canadian. On summer, at summer, Sunday, December 11th, uh, the Predators put Eli Tolvanen, Eli Tolvanen, my mistake, on waivers. 23-year-old winger, um, 51 points in 135 NHL games, all with the Predators. Uh, $1.45 million cap hit this season and next. The second that tweet went out from the insiders at, you know, 2 o'clock on, on Sunday, Everyone was really interested in where he was going to end up. It, it, very, it seemed very likely that he would not end up back in Nashville. Um, with the position the Canadians are in, and and the business they're in, which is the good player business, you know, everyone talks about, well, why is Doc playing on the wing instead of at center? Because they're in the business of good players. I They need more good players. Ely Tolvanen fits within their their you know, their potential window there. I think he would have fit within their salary cap. He, only a, you know, a million and a half bucks. They, they could have made that work, I think. Um, but I think the real issue with, you know, bringing him in is yes, the cap situation, they're living on long-term IR right now. They have lots of bad contracts still on the team that they would need to shed. Um, but the real, the, the biggest one I think was roster construction and roster space. At the time of Tolvanen being waived, the Canadians had a full roster, 23 players, but they had no healthy scratches. Everyone who was healthy was in the lineup. And that includes Rem Pitlick, who was on an emergency recall from Laval. I think now he's just part of the roster, but you know he was an emergency recall at one point because they weren't sure what Monaghan was going to be like. And you know, at the time of this, of this, you know, them placing Tolvanen on waivers. Savard and Monaghan were hurt, but still not on the IR. They were taking up roster spaces. Um, with all of that said, there were paths to getting a player like Tolvanen on this roster. Monaghan going on the IR. He has to spend a week there. He can retroactively be placed on the IR so that the week, you know, kind of has elapsed already by the time, you know, you put him on there. Like if, you know, today's the, the 16th, if he was hurt on the 8th, you can put him on the IR retroactive to like the 9th and he would be able to play soon. Um, which is, which frustratingly is what the Canadians ended up doing after the waiver claims were processed. Both, I think both Savard and Monaghan went to the IR because they're going to be out for two to three weeks. Um, you could have done that with Savard as well. Pitlick could have gone back down to Laval without waivers, I believe, since he was only up for, I think, less than 10 games um, and less than 30 days. I don't think he would need to clear waivers again. And even if he did, I think he would have cleared anyway. 
Um, it does make sense that the Canadians avoided this one, though, because, like I said, they had no healthy scratches. Like, they were playing everybody that was healthy. So if they did that against the Flames, they would have had to ice a lineup that wasn't complete, um, which you don't want to do. But with Seattle claiming Tolvanian, it basically confirms the Canadians didn't have a claim in for him because the Canadians' claim would have had priority over Seattle's. I don't think this is the end of the world. So I don't want any of this to seem like I'm complaining that, you know, they, they didn't pick up this one guy I wanted. It's not, you know, even if Ely Tolvanian becomes a player, I, it, you know, Montreal's going to have their guys soon. It's just, he would have been a nice to have. It would have, this is the kind of situation that you would hope that the Canadians would be in a position to capitalize on. But because of their awful cap-friendly page, like if you go there, it's, it, is, it is maddening how stuck they are. It would have required some maneuvering that I guess the Canadians front office didn't think was worth it. Maybe they don't think, they don't think that highly of Ely Tolvin, and it's entirely possible. Um, you know, Nick Bobroff is, the, is one of their, the higher-ups in scouting, and I know he has a focus on European prospects. That makes sense. You know, if, if, if anyone was going to know Bobroff would probably be the guy. Who knows? It's a smart pickup for Seattle, though. So, got to tip your cap to them. Um, all right. I also got asked to talk about the World Juniors for a little bit. Um, they kick off Monday, December 26th. Uh, the Canadians are well represented. They'll have about six guys um, going. I'm not a prospect watcher regularly. I don't watch, you know, OHL games. I don't watch a lot of, you know, prospect hockey. Um, I watch the world juniors pretty regularly, but I, I, I rely on people who actually know what they're doing and saying to inform my opinions on Canadian's prospects. And even, you know, on prospects that I have watched, um, you know, I don't know how to scout. I know how to watch hockey. That's not the same thing. So with that said, there's, there's the standard amount of hype around Habs representation in this tournament. Um, you know, Habs fans always get really excited to watch their guys in this tournament. Like, I remember when, when the Canadians loaned Mete. When he was on the NHL roster and they loaned him to World Juniors, everyone was so stoked to watch him, and he was, like, just okay. That should have really been the sign that that was coming to an end. But anyway, um, before I talk about, you know, the, the guys that I'm focusing on, I kind of wanted to focus on some of the omissions. Um, Owen Beck was a big one. Um, he was cut from Team Canada. A legitimate shock not only to the player himself but like to the the people who have watched Owen Beck in the OHL like uh, Lauren Kelly is a big OHL watcher and she's sort of the you know one of the one of the OHL kingmakers in the sense that like when when she follows a player that player is probably going to end up being pretty good um she loves Beck everybody that I that I you know all the, all of the standard scouting guys Sebastian High Hattie K um they love Beck so it was very it was confusing that he didn't make it, but I thought on Game Over Montreal after the Ottawa game, um, Tony Ferraro was talking... Tony Ferraro. Tony Ferraro. Ferrari? Ferrari. Yeah, that's it. I just had, like, an entire brain fart. Tony Ferrari was talking with Andrew Berkshire, um, and he made a good point that Beck lacks the positional versatility required to be a forward on Team Canada. They already have eight or so forwards that are listed as centers. Like they have, like it, it's so center heavy. And I guess maybe the question came down to whether or not Beck can play the wing. Team Canada thought otherwise. It's, 
you know, as much as the World Juniors are kind of nice, it probably is better for him to go back to the OHL than, like, play on the fourth line on Team Canada. Um, but, you know, and I'll, there's more coming on back in this show um, towards the end, but it does stink. You, you root for kids to, to get that shot because it's probably his last his last chance to play on that turn on that team. Um, so it, it sucks. Uh, Riley kidney, even worse. He was injured in camp and then cut after that. The injury wasn't thought to be too serious, but still a bummer. Um, you know, he probably wouldn't have made the team even with the injury apparently, but that is what it is. Um, the Canadians aren't loaning Slavkovsky to, uh, the Slovakian team. This one makes sense for the Canadians. I was kind of 50, 50. If he went cool, if he didn't also cool, I, I don't think going to the world juniors would matter all that much in evaluating Slavkovsky or, you know, his development in general. He's already won an Olympic MVP. It would be really weird to send him back there. I know that Olympic tournament wasn't against NHL talent, but it was against men. Like, it was against really, really good hockey teams. It would just be kind of odd to see him get sent to that tournament. Um, so, on, the, the, on my personal watch list, I have two players. Um, one, Lane Hudson, because duh. That... From everything I've read, everything I've listened to, that American team isn't going to be all that great. Um, so he has a real chance to shine there. He's already destroying the NCAA. So I, I really can't wait to see what he does on the international stage. And second, um, this was a name that Tony Ferrari mentioned on Game Over, Oliver Kapanen with Finland. It's a prospect I, I you know, that doesn't get a ton of play as far as like you know the, the hype train goes. Um, He's got 13 points in 31 games in the Liga. He's a draft plus two forward, but he's only played in 57 games since his draft year. So, you know, you're you're looking at a guy who hasn't played a ton. According to Ferrari, he, he he's, Kapanen appears poised to have like a prime opportunity to lead that Finnish team from an offensive standpoint. So I'm curious to see how he does. Um, you know, I'm and it, I'm I'm looking forward to watching that tournament. It is it is it is synonymous with the holidays for me. Um, even being an American, you know, and not having a ton of people around me who enjoy that, I, I do really enjoy watching that tournament. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how, how these Habs prospects shape up. However, let us caveat this now. Having a massive tournament does not mean this player is going to absolutely tear it apart at the NHL level. I gesture lightly towards Alexander Romanov who is an NHL player. I won't take that away from him. But the offensive output that we saw from him in that tournament, where he was, I think, defender of the tournament, that that has never that has not translated to the NHL to this point. Um, and having a bad tournament doesn't mean you're a bust. I believe Nick Suzuki, in his last World Junior Tournament, he didn't look all that great. And look at him now. So it's a fun tournament. It's a nice opportunity to see these guys. You can say that a player had a good tournament or a bad tournament. You shouldn't use that to just, you know, create your entire basis for evaluating these players. I know enough about scouting to know that that's not how you evaluate talent on a very small, um, you know, sample size of games. All right. Well, that's it on the World Juniors. Um, let's uh, let's hit our last segment here, back to the drawing board and our building blocks. 
back to the drawing board first. I feel like everyone knows this is coming. The power play. Uh, the current um, ideology of the Canadians' power play is the beatings will continue until morale improves. The strategy, the personnel, it's the same. <laughs> and through that, over the last stretch of games, they went 23 power play opportunities without a goal. <laughs> that is astounding. On a team that has had Cole Caulfield in basically all of those games, they lost him for the Flames game for a little bit, but they finally scored in the third period against Anaheim. Of course, it was Cole Caulfield to do it. And that looked like an entirely different team that scored that power play goal. The passing play they set up, to make another baseball analogy, um, it looked like a, a 4-6-3 double play. No one held the puck longer than they needed to you know, before passing it to the next guy. Uh, no dust, as Kevin Bieksa says on, on Hockey Night in Canada, uh, which means no one dusted it off. They just moved it to the next body as fast as possible. So that was that was a nice sign because that that is in them at all times. They can do that. It just seems like sometimes they get out there. I think I think this power play struggling became, um, you know, more of a mental thing than anything. Like they just got out there and they knew like the crowd starts booing. Like it's it's a tough it's tough. Um, but you know, they they figured it out for that one game. Maybe they'll be able to figure it out on other ones. Look, Marty St. Louis owns the power play. It's been said. He is the one in charge of it. I've talked about it being Burroughs' thing. Burroughs might have owned it last year. The Canadians have made it clear. Marty is the one running that power play. He needs to figure that out. And that's why Marty is next up on things being sent back to the drawing board. I think this is the first time St. Louis has, has been on this list. Um... He's really starting to show some of his inexperience behind the bench. Now, it's not I'm not saying like can him now. We need to get rid of him. No, he's he's going to learn as the team does, which is totally fine. Um for one, Montreal has had a handful of consecutive games now where they just do not start on time. Maybe they're like me and they thought the games were 7:30 starts. But he has a young team that I think needs a certain level of motivation to get them going. And they're just not starting. Their first period, their first periods used to be one of their best. And then it became, you know, the second period was always one of their worst, and the third period was pretty bad too. Now all three periods seem pretty rough. Um, third period must at this point must look a lot better considering against Ottawa and against Anaheim, that's where they scored all their goals. Um and you know, I say he has a young team. Because it seems like the team still, you know, when things aren't going well, they still have a little bit of that Dom Ducharme snowball in them. Where when things get bad, they snowball and get worse in short order. And the coach has a has a tool at his disposal to fix that, and it's called a timeout. The second period of the game against Ottawa. Eight minutes in, you have no shots. You haven't had a shot since the 15-minute mark of the of the first period. Ottawa has scored three times on you in the second period and are absolutely beating the wheels off of you. There's half the game left to get this figured out. Call timeout. 
if if you think that that's embarrassing them, as you know, embarrassing the players, I think going going you know over a period without a shot on goal is is embarrassing enough. But Saint Louis seems to like to save those timeouts for the end of the game when the team is trailing, so that Alexander Burrows can call up a play that will not work. Montreal has been in a lot of those six-on-five situations this year where they call a timeout and Burroughs draws up the play on the whiteboard and then it just doesn't work. The one time it did work was when Drillon just found a better play and the players said as much. They scored it against Ottawa in a six-on-five, but it was on a delayed penalty where they didn't have time to go to the bench and see what Burroughs had drawn up and they just played the way they wanted to play. So I'm honestly wondering what's going on there. If Burroughs isn't running the power play and Burroughs is is writing is drawing up those plays that don't work, what is it that you do here? And I'm not saying there's no value in holding that timeout for the end, but these losses are starting to feel the same. And that's something that last year was a real problem. From, you know, the first half of the season, you could not tell one game from the other. They got scored on early and often, they might have had a little bit of fight back towards the end, and then they would have lost. And, you know, goals in rapid succession, and the, the coach is sitting there with the timeout in his pocket. If you're going to lose, lose differently, right? Like, try something new. Try waking this team up. You know, I, I especially maybe in the Anaheim game at some point, there wasn't really a good opportunity for it, but in, in Ottawa... I, I I feel very strongly that at the midway point of that period, when, when Brady Kachuk scored to make it 3-0, you have to call timeout. And one more thing on the, uh, well, being sent back to the drawing board, Yoel Armia. This man is cursed. I think that's all I really need to say. He's not playing poorly. The damn thing's just not going in. He's second-guessing every shot he takes. You know, every you see him get these chances in the slot where he just he like he's holding the puck for what feels like a, a an eternity. It's it's hard not to feel for the guy as cold as I often am on here about the veterans on this team who will be headed out within the next few years. But it is difficult to 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 watch him play. It it sucks. You, you again you root for the guy. The guy's really struggling right now. All right, building blocks. I've got two here. Uh, let's start with Uri Slavkovsky. Um, you can feel that his offense is really starting to click. Um, or I should say it was before Marty effectively benched him with two fourth-line shifts in the third period against Anaheim after you know a a, a pretty bad second. Um, but it, like the leash is very short. I was talking with I was tweeting with Andrew Berkshire about it, and you know he was right that that Slavkovsky didn't have a great second period, but like if that. If, if we're taking him off of the second line after one bad period, what are we doing with Evgeny Dodonov? <laughs> Who just stayed on that third line and they leapfrogged over him. Um, before Monaghan went down with injury, that line with Slavkowski and Anderson was really, really good. Even with Evans down the middle of, of Slavkowski and Anderson, it's been okay. I think the confidence has always been there for Slavkowski. You see it with the moves that he tries to make with the puck. You know, he thinks he can one-on-one everybody in this league. Eventually, he's going to have to stop doing that. But he's learning. He's learning more about how this league works, how the game is played along the wall. He'll be great. 
Uh, last week, remember I was talking about Adam, Sla or Adam Slavkovsky. I kind of gave away the lead there. I was talking about Slavkovsky and how he needs to understand the ice surface better. And I talked about him working with Adam Nicholas. And sure enough, videos this week from, you know, reporters who were with the Canadians, or I think maybe even the Canadians themselves tweeted them out, of Slavkovsky working with Nicholas, you know, solo. One video in particular showed them working along the boards, getting the puck out off the boards in the offensive zone and turning it into an offensive opportunity. And it looked very similar to the play that that Slavkovsky set up twice in a row on the, in the in the Calgary game where he set up uh, Anderson. He set him up once, didn't go. They re-racked it. They did the same play again, and he scored. Um, so, like, that's just... It's really nice to see that development happening literally right in front of us. Um, and he's he's been playing well. I think, you know, going into that, that game against um, Anaheim, he had five points in his last seven games or so. So, keep it going. Enjoying watching him play. I'm glad he's going to be around for the, uh, the whole year. Um, and lastly, on the building blocks... Owen Beck, um, getting cut from Team Canada probably hurt a lot, but he is uh, effectively taking that pain out on the OHL. His first game back against uh, North Bay, he has three assists in a game they lose 7-3, but he found the score sheet seven, uh, three times. I can't really complain there. You know who else knows a lot about getting cut by Team Canada? Marty St. Louis. Um, Steve Eiserman was the general manager of the Lightning and Team Canada in 2014 when the, the Olympics were in Sochi. Um, and he didn't include St. Louis on that initial roster, instead opting to hold that spot for Steven, Stamp Steven Stamkos, who was injured, in the hopes that he would heal up and come back. He didn't, and then he added St. Louis to that roster. Um, and it's wild because like the year before, the, the lockout shortened season, St. Louis won the Art Ross. He had 60 points in 48 games. He was the he was the highest scorer in the league. And that lack of respect from the GM of the Lightning and Team Canada and Steve Eisenman, it bothered St. Louis so much that he requested a trade that was ultimately facilitated. Um, I'm not saying that Owen Beck, I mean, Owen Beck can't really request a trade because I don't think it would matter. But... I, I think the best thing for Beck to do is to go back to the OHL and light it up the rest of the way and keep playing with that chip on his shoulder. There's something about hockey players and having, you know, having, having those people in power just tell you you can't do stuff. They just love proving people wrong. So looking forward to that. I would have really liked to see him at the tournament, but so it goes. All right. I think that's all I got this, this week. Um, busy road trip ahead for the Canadians. As I said, a lot of late games. So put the coffee on. You'll be up late. Um, holidays are coming up. I'm not sure when I'll have another episode for you. If this is the end of the year for the, for the build, um, I want to say thank you for listening, sharing, interacting, just allowing this show to exist in the same space as you. Um, it means a great deal to me. You know, I, I talked about those numbers that I, that I saw from, um, Spotify on how well this show did last year and it, it was it, it was very nice to see um so if I if if this is it for the year have a safe and happy holidays um you know take care of each other don't drink and drive that sort of stuff um and I'll see you when I see you all right the music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing right now is inside by Fred Mug check the link in the description to head over to his Bandcamp page 
Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Happy holidays.